So let's start out in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day. Thank you for bringing us out here to this place to study. Thank you for a gorgeous day out, and I pray that you would teach us now in this hour together. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to be talking about the hypostatic union. This is a very important theological concept. And basically what it means is the union of Christ's two natures, the human and the divine. One of the things you will find as you study church history, if you study church history, through the first, uh, oh, probably about 700 years since uh, the time of Christ, since Christ's death, for about the first seven centuries, there's a lot of discussion in the church about how the natures of Christ sort themselves out. In about A.D. 300, you have the Council of Nicaea. That determined that Christ was fully deity, fully God. Then they determined that he was fully man. So having defined both of those, he's fully God, fully man, then the question becomes, okay, if he's fully God and fully man, then how do these two natures exist in a single person? Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says he is fully God. The Bible says he's fully man. So how can both of these natures exist? And what is the nature of the natures? What do we mean by that? And that's what we'll be talking about here. Um, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Romans 1, 3 and 4 talks about both of these sides of Christ's nature. By the way, Christ was not a composite being. He was not composite in the sense that there were two beings in there, two personalities. He was a single personality, the eternal Son of God. Yet he had all the qualities of humanity and divinity. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Um, well, let's just read the first four verses. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand to his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. Okay, what part of Christ is that talking about? Human. So... Christ was fully human and he descended from the seed of David. Alright? Now, how did he descend from the seed of David? Well, if you study the genealogies in Luke and in Matthew, Joseph traced his genealogy back and Mary traces her genealogy back. Both Mary and Joseph were from the seed of David. And in fact, Joseph was in the direct kingly line of David. Alright? So, although Joseph was not Jesus' real father, he descended from that line and Mary descended from the line of David as well. So Christ was of the seed of David. All right. In fact, he is called son of David several times in the New Testament. Remember? I'm blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, so it's very well established that Christ was of the seed of David. That shows his full humanity and it shows his rightful descent from the kingly line. And why is that important? Why is it important that he be of the seed of David? He's prophesied, right? Remember back in, I always get First and Second Samuel mixed up. It's First Samuel or Second Samuel 7, where it talks about uh, a promise that Nathan said God gave to David, that of his seed shall someone come and sit on the throne forever. All right? And that's a Davidic promise. Psalm 89 is another Davidic psalm that talks about the seed of David, the son of, uh, a king from the line of David will occupy the throne. And the Jews were looking for their Messiah to come from the line of David. All right? So Christ being descended from the line of David is a very important topic. It also shows that he was fully human in every sense. But then in verse 4 it says, And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So what side of that, what side of the equation is that looking at? The deity side. Alright. And uh, the word declared there is a fascinating word. It's horizo. What do you think we get from that? Horizo. What's it sound like? H. Horizo. Put an N on the end of it. What do you get? Horizon. Okay, what's the horizon? When you look out on the ocean, what's the horizon? That's her question. Yeah, and what does it separate? The water from the sky. It's a separating line. It's a dividing line. 
It's a dividing line. And what uh, Paul is saying here in Romans is that Jesus was forever separated from every other human being because he was what? And what happened to him? He was raised from the dead. What's separate? How do you know that? Here's a question. How do you know Jesus is God? What's, what's one way to know he's God other than he's saying he's God? Other than the prophecies, how would you know he's God? What did he do that no one else did? Rose again. All right. And Paul is saying that Jesus was declared or, or evidenced to be the son of David by his lineage, by his birth. And he was shown to be fully God, fully deity by his resurrection from the dead. Christ is both. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's not... Now, now we're going to talk about this because some say, well, does that mean that the human nature and the divine nature made a third nature? A third composite nature? No. What it means is that he is 100% human, 100% man, but he's not 200% of something. Okay? And you're going to have to just go with that one because that's what the scripture teaches. And we'll, we'll explore that a little bit here. But the hypostatic union refers to the unity of Christ's human and divine natures. There's a unity there. They were not in conflict. Christ's divine nature and Christ's human nature were not in conflict. They were not warring with one another. All right? And here's the thing to understand, too, as it was sorted out later on in church history, and we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. But throughout church history, it doesn't mean that the divine nature totally um, uh, dominated the human nature. And the human nature did not totally dominate the divine nature, but they were in balance in him. All right? There was a balance in these natures. It is a very discussed and argued aspect of theology because one of our problems is, as human beings, we want to sort everything out, don't we? We want to have all a nice package, a little answer, and have it all figured out. And uh, this is one of those mysteries, folks. We've been hitting a lot of those in the class, haven't we? The Trinity. How do you figure that one out? You don't. You just go with it. How do you figure out the hypostatic union? You don't. You just go with what the scripture says. The scripture very clearly teaches Jesus is fully God, fully man. You go with that. You you understand it for what it says. Yeah. Could it be an analogy to 100% body, 100% soul, and 100% spirit? No, it can't be. And the reason, let me... You're, you're hinting at something there, but one of the problems is there's some people that bought into that and they went down a heresy path. Because what they taught is that, okay, the body of Christ was human, but the spirit was divine and the soul was divine. Therefore, he was two-thirds divine and one-third human. Okay, that's icky. You don't want to get there. You don't want to go there. All right. Um, that's, that's a heresy that was repudiated later on. Because then you make... And, and also, by the way, when you go that way... And we're going we're gonna to hit this later next year. Um, is does the Bible teach your soul, spirit, and body, or does the Bible teach you have an immaterial part and a material part? The point there is there's a difference between dichotomous and trichotomous. That's another fancy word. What do you think dichotomous means? Two. So you have a human. When I look at you, I see a physical part of you, and then there's an immaterial part of you. All right. Um, then the others say, no, there's really three parts of you. You've got a body, you've got a soul, and you've got a spirit. Um, and we'll talk through, you know, biblical evidences for or against each one of those. I, I happen to be a dichotomist because I think there's a lot of passages that talk about the soul and the spirit. They use the word interchangeably. All right. Um, but... The breath of life, and he became a living soul, so it was a combination of body and spirit that made Right, right. And, and I think the Bible teaches you have an immaterial part that we don't see. That's the eternal part of you. And then there's the material, physical form that you have. All right? I think that's the best understanding. But what they did when they went down that route is they say, they make, I think, I forget who it was. Um, I think it might be Apollinarius. Well, I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was. But he basically said, well, Jesus was two-thirds divine. So he had the divine human, he had the divine soul and a divine spirit, but a human body. Alright, and, and they start splitting it up. You don't want to go there, really. Um, but with the hypostatic union, the, the, the orthodox understanding and the, 
in the scriptural teaching is that Christ was fully human and fully divine at the same time. And there was no, there was no, um, no incompatibility between the natures. There was no, um, it was not such that one nature dominated the other nature. Alright? But both were in perfect balance. Although, although they each were separate, they were in balance. We'll talk about that. Alright? So let's look at, um, what do we mean when we talk about nature? What is that? Alright? Well, Christ's divine nature was what? Well, it's eternal, right? It never had a beginning, never had an ending. It was. He is the eternal I am, right? As Satan, self-existent, unlike us, we had a beginning. Where did your immaterial part come from? The real you. Well, there's arguments on that. Um, whether you came from, whether God created you at the moment of conception, or whether um, God built into your, into the human. Um, the human body, the ability not to only procreate the body, but the soul, I think that's the best understanding. I don't think God created you at the moment of your conception, because then, why would he create a... If God created you, what kind of creation would you be? Perfect or imperfect? Perfect, right? So why would God create a perfect you and then stick you in a sinful body and then make you a sinner? Got problems there, all right? Um, I think what the best way to understand it is that your soul came from your parents. How does that work out? I don't know how that works out. God created us. God, God's able to figure that out. I think that's the best way to understand what it says in the Scripture. Because it's, and it's interesting when you look about when you look at that, like in Hebrews and that, it talks about how Levi was in Abraham. Remember? Well, how was Levi in Abraham if Levi didn't exist and God created him at the moment of his conception? So there's a sense, we're getting off the track a little bit here, but the point is Jesus is self-existent. We aren't. We had a beginning. We started at some point. Jesus never had a beginning. He was omnipotent. How do you know he was omnipotent? How, was, how do you know Jesus Christ was omnipotent? He controlled the waves. He controlled, the waves. He controlled, he, he controlled disease. He said, I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal. And if nothing, it's the eternal second member of the Trinity. He is responsible for holding the universe together and it didn't dissolve while he was here. Right? So he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. What do we mean by that? He knows everything. And people say, well, wait a minute. You know, how, how was it that uh, he said, I don't know the day or the hour of my coming? Well, Jesus Christ limited his knowledge to that which the Father revealed to him. How did he do that? I don't know. <laughs> But in his incarnation, Christ, remember when we're going to talk about this, in the kenosis, he voluntarily gave up the independent use of these attributes. It's not that he gave them up. He just sub subserviated their use to that of the Father and the Spirit. There were two indications for his omniscient and then I can think of and he knew it was in the heart of man. He didn't have anybody, you know, again, again, it's really bad when you're, you know, when you're a Pharisee and you're, you're thinking to yourself something bad about Christ because as pastors showing out, what does Christ know? He knows what they're thinking, alright? So he's omniscient, he knows everything, and he's sovereign, what does that mean? He's in charge of everything, he's sovereign over nature, sovereign over disease, sovereign over Satan, right? When the demon said, don't send us to the abyss, it shows his absolute sovereignty over the demonic forces over fallen angels. He is immutable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've talked about that. Not stagnation, but his character doesn't change. Who he is doesn't change. He is self-existent. He is holy. He never did anything wrong. He never committed a sin. Righteous. By definition, what Christ did was right. He's the definition. He's the ruler by which righteousness is gauged. And Christ had a non-corporeal component. What does that mean? He is spirit, right? God is spirit. Christ had all of these attributes in him. Yet, at the same time, he had all the human aspects. Where are the human aspects? Yeah. One of the things I was looking up, Peter Bell's having some controversy over different things about what they believe in doctrinal stances. One of the questions came up was talking about um, whether they believe his righteous life what that had to do with our salvation and looking into the fact that because he was completely righteous and pure and lived a holy life 
that that in itself, even before the crucifixion, that's the part somehow back to like that's the part that is attributed to us in the exchange that was made on the cross is his righteousness and purity, his and sin, and sinless life becomes ours. We become that. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's there's biblical support for that. When I became a Christian, Christ's righteousness was imputed to me as though I did everything he did. His, my sin was imputed to him, <laughs> All right, which he paid for on the cross by his death. There is a transaction. There is a divine transaction at the moment of salvation. All your sin goes to Christ. All his righteousness comes to you. And, and that's, that's a forensic declaration. Know what forensic means. Legal, right? It's a legal declaration. Now, we are made righteous as we are sanctified, and someday we will be righteous. But forensically, before the bar of God, before his judgment, I am declared righteous. That's an awesome thing to think about that people who are not believers don't understand and no. really appreciate, but wow. Right. It is. It's a wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, my brain came to a screeching call five minutes ago when you were talking about Okay. They were not created as a as a creation of God, as a direct creation of God. Rather, God built within the human um, procreation process the ability not only to create a body but a soul as well. Same thing. Where does your cat's personality come from? Did God create that when it was conceived? No, it came from mom and dad cat. You know, and, and we'll talk about all that later. You know, but. But the point is, we had, the point I want to say now, we had a beginning. We started at some point. Um, Christ did not. Now, when you look by this human nature, um, what did we, Christ was, had a physical body, right? Christ walked around in a physical body. So he had some substance to him, alright? And by the way, here's an interesting thing. That, that substance is an eternal in nature. Prior to the incarnation, Christ existed as Spirit. But after the incarnation and in future heaven, what will we see him as? The Lamb of God. He will have a physical body. We will see him. So that, that combining of the human and the divine at the incarnation is a permanent thing for the second member of the Trinity. Do we know for sure that he didn't have a physical body before? God is spirit. He took upon himself a physical form as the angel of the Lord, right? But God is spirit. God is eternal spirit. He did not have a physical body, a permanent physical body, whereas now he does. His resurrection body is a permanent body, and we all have a body like that, okay? As a human, he was localized. He actually walked along the streets of Jerusalem, the roads of Israel, all right? He was subject to death. What part of him was subject to death? What could you kill? The body. All right. And he had, and that. Remember, it says in the book of Hebrews, "A body you have prepared for me." Why did God prepare a body for Christ so He could become the perfect substitute? He could die for us. He was subject to weaknesses. What kind of weakness? Well, the frailty of the human flesh. He got thirsty, he got tired, he got hungry. You know, he, he was subject to those weaknesses. All right. Um, subject to temptation. We're going to talk about this in a few minutes. What does it mean, subject to temptation? Well, the human humanity of Christ was subject to temptation. Now, he could not sin because he was God. But that does not lessen the, the force of that temptation in any way. It doesn't make it non-existent or doesn't invalidate it. 
one of the straw men that people put up and say, well, if Jesus, uh, they want to say, well, Jesus was just able not to sin. He was able to not commit a sin. Well, and you say, well, I don't, I don't really go along with that. Well, then the temptation is not a valid temptation if he wasn't able to sin. Well, yeah, it was. It just means that he took temptation to the ultimate end and did not bend. Unlike us that bend long before we ever hit that, the, you know, the red line, so to speak. You don't have to sin. That's, that's the, now, that's something to think about. None of you in here have to sin. You have the ability, theoretically, theoretically, we have the ability to never sin again if we're totally controlled by the Spirit. The problem is, that's a struggle, isn't it? That's Romans, that's Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want to do, I do. You know, so, but theoretically, theoretically, we don't have to sin because we're not a slave to sin anymore. Romans chapter 6 and 7, you're not a slave to sin. You're not in bondage to sin. It's, the power's been broken in your life. All right? And the human part of him had a beginning at birth, right? It wasn't, he didn't have an eternal human part, but that humanity was there at birth. He was born into the world. He came into the world through the, being the physical offspring of Mary and the Holy Spirit. He had a body. Now, here's the thing to understand. These are not mutually exclusive attributes, are they? Or characteristics. See, where you'd have a problem if you had something that was mutually exclusive. Can you be localized and yet um, omnipresent at the same time? Sure you can, right? God can do that. I mean, even before his incarnation, the, when he appeared as the angel of the Lord, he was localized, yet he was omnipotent, Right? So they're not mutually exclusive. That's the thing to understand. That, that helps you get your head around this. Is that these attributes are not mutually exclusive attributes. If I have one, I can't have the other. You can have both. All right. And one of the things we talked about last week is being human does not necessarily mean you are a sinner, right? Being human does not necessarily mean you are a sinner. No, it doesn't. It's just all the 40 billion or 50 billion examples we have. They're all sinners, but was Adam and Eve a sinner? Yeah. No. Not at the beginning, they weren't. Was Jesus Christ fully human? Sure, he's not a sinner. Uh, in eternal state, are you going to be fully human in the eternal state? Yeah. Are you going to be a sinner? No, all right. So being a sinner is not an essential component of what it means to be human. That old, you know, phrase the air is human, you know, that's just a, that's generally true. <laughs> it just so happens that every human being we know is a sinner, right? Because we're all born under the curse. But that's not an essential component of what it means to be a human being. That's not part of your nature. It happens to be part of ours because we were born that way, but it's not an essential component of that. Does that make any sense? Sorting that out. You're, you are, you're born sin. You're born in sin. All right. You have the imputed guilt of Adam. Yes, you are. There's no doubt about it. So any human being born now is a sinner. What I'm saying is you can still be human and not be a sinner. In, in our current state, in our current state, you're right. But what about the eternal state? Yeah, we will. Of course we will. We're not there yet. Yeah, you're right. We're not there yet. In, in, in eternity, I'm going to be fully human. But I'm not going to be a sinner. I'm not going to be able to sin. I'll be perfect. I'll be perfect. Got, got right. I think we're squabbling over the two categories of sin. Right. That is to say, sin as in uh, us being the children of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. So that includes Enoch who didn't have to die. It right. includes every human being. On the other hand, I agree that we don't have to 
sin if we are 100% all the time controlled by the Holy Spirit. So the act of sin mm -hmm. on a daily basis, we don't have to be privy or subject to that. But on the other hand, we are all subject to being under the curse of Right. What I'm trying to get at, this is what I'm trying to, maybe I didn't explain it very well. When you start listing out the qualities of what makes somebody, what makes something human, how do I categorize humanity? Sin is not one of those essential components. Yeah, I disagree with that. You know, we talked about this last week, though, too, and he said, if you sin is forgiven, then heaven is going to be one of the sin that we continue to do is that pollution sin. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sin is something that is that has become part of our human condition because of our fallenness. There's no doubt about that. But originally Adam and Eve did not have that. Right. Yet they were fully human. So I didn't because of evolution. I don't know that they were fully human either. I mean because What were they then? They were innocent. No. They, they were fully human. I mean, Adam and Eve, if they would pop in here before their fall, they would look like one of us. I mean, they, they were fully human in every respect. The, the difference is they did not have the sin nature. They did not have that. That was something that came because of their rebellion, because of their fall. That's something that became part of the human condition and passed on to all of us. We have that now. Okay. Part of humanity is the fallenness. Yes, we have that now. But someday that fallenness is going to go away. But we're still going to be human. We're just not going to be fallen humanity. That, that's what I'm trying to get at. We'll still be human, but not fallen human. Yeah, I'm sorry. In our old, in our old nature, if you want to put it that way, um, when we were born in our sinful nature, it was a habitual sin. We were slaves to sin, so right. we habitually sinned. As believers, we can make the choice to sin, mm -hmm. but we no longer live in that habitual sin. You don't have to. You yes. Have to. The power of sin has been broken. And see, Jesus Christ was fully human. If, if you go down the track you're taking, then Jesus was really not fully human because he, he didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have a sin nature. But he was fully human. Right. So that means being fully human does not... Yeah. But but for him to be our perfect substitute, he had to be one of us. He had to be one of us. He couldn't be something not like us. He couldn't be, well, there's human one and human two. Human one is a sinful humanity. Human two is a different, unsinful humanity. He was part of human two. Well, that doesn't do us any good. He had to be like us. He had to be one of us in every way. But he was not sinful. And in eternity, you're going to be fully human. I'm going to be able to recognize you and, you know, know who you are. You'll be fully human and you will not be sinful. You'll have a physical body, but you will never sin. And never be able to sin, which is the good part. Yeah. Okay. On that very thing, like something else. I'm going to do something else first. Okay. Interestingly, in the list of divine characteristics, there isn't the word omnipresent. Was that an oversight? No, it's just I didn't have space. Okay. <laughs> the other thing is um, uh, the fact that that we have, excuse me, a fallen nature, but he doesn't. What I'm wrestling with in my head at the moment is, therefore, I believe that he was subject to temptation, but I, I'm wrestling with how he could be subject to temptation without a fallen nature. Okay. Um, it's, I can explain that probably best if you really studied um, James chapter 1. When we think of temptation, what do we think of it as being? Positive or negative? Negative. 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 All right. Is, it ne is temptation necessarily negative? No. Necessarily. We, we, use, we use it in a negative sense because that's what we think of all the time, negatively. Um, let's say, let, well, let me ask a question here. Is, uh, is being hungry, you know, you're, you're hungry, you're starved, and you see something... 
Is that necessary? Is it a sin for you to feel hungry and want something to eat? What makes it a sin? When you overdo it, when you steal it, all right. When you take what's not yours, you know. When you when you when you satisfy it in an inappropriate way, all right. That's sin. All right. Is sexual desire a sin? No, none of us would be here, right? I mean, God created that. When does it become a sin? When I or when you or I try to indulge that in an inappropriate way, that becomes sin. So. The, the, what do you want to call it? The desires of the flesh. My body, my body tells me I'm hungry. My body tells me I'm thirsty. Things like that. Those in and of themselves are not sinful. What makes it sinful is then when I pursue that in an inappropriate way or when I do that in an indulging way. Pride of life, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So was it a sin for, I mean, Christ had been in the wilderness 40 days without eating. Was he hungry? Was it wrong for him to be hungry? So when Satan showed up and, you know, said, hey, make some stones bread, necessarily, would it have been wrong? Necessarily. For Christ to have made bread. No, he could have done that. You know, he could create an eight. But it would have been inappropriate for him to succumb to that in an inappropriate way by not depending on the provision of the Father. Then it becomes sin. Does that make any sense there? Alright? Desire is not sinful. Alright? When you're thirsty, when you're hungry, when you're sleepy, those things are not sins. They're your body telling you certain things. When you have sexual desire, that's not necessarily sinful. It becomes sinful when we indulge it in an inappropriate way. That's when it becomes sin. Alright? So Christ could face all of the normal impulses of humanity, just like we do, and not sin. He never indulged it in an inappropriate way. And he never allowed his imagination. Here's the other thing it says in James, is when those desires come, what happens to your imagination? It becomes engaged. All right? And that's where sin first originates. It's not in the action, it's in the mind. All right. That's what makes, you know, probably one of the most obvious uh, examples of this is, you know, pornography. That's what makes it so sinful because it's not, you may never, ever, ever have sex with any one of those people you're looking at, but you think it. It's sin. It's the same thing. That's what Christ is saying. Whoso looks on a woman to lust after is already committed sin. All right. The act is already there. And by the way, you realize none of those people exist in real life. They don't exist. I had I was talking to a guy who sells EMC disc, which is big disc arrays, you know, for storage. And uh, he had a particular account up in Detroit he went to. It was one of his accounts. And they bought a lar- large amount of this storage, this disc storage. And uh, he was there and he said it was a really a weird experience. He's walk, you know, walking in the building that. He's hearing all these weird sounds and all of this stuff going on behind these doors and didn't know what was going on. Come to find out, it's one of the top uh, pornography shops in America. It's also a brothel while it's at it. But uh, what they're doing is they take all of the photographs and they touch them up. They got Photoshop and everything else. So look, folks, you know, anybody you see, well, hopefully you don't, <laughs> but anybody you would see in those magazines, they don't exist. They're, they're, they're a figment of somebody's imagination and Photoshop and, you know, they don't exist. And that's the insidiousness of, insidiousness of sin. Satan tells you something that doesn't exist. All right? But Christ could be fully tempted, yet he could not sin. Well, we're going to get to that here. All right? The union of the two natures. We're going to delve into this a little more when we talk about heresies to really give you the, the, the orthodox definition. But the union of the two natures of Christ form one person. There is not two people in there. All right? There's one person in there. Christ had a will, he had emotions, he had intellect. He was not a schizophrenic. Alright? There were not two personalities in there. There was a singular personality. And it was a complete merging. It was not it was a complete union. There was no conflict between the natures. He acted as a single unified person. 
Now you say, well, wait a minute then. How do you explain what it says in the garden? And he asked the Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. All right? Well, in his humanity, what did Christ know he was going to become? Sin. For eternity, Christ had a perfect face-to-face relationship with the Father. And yet, for three hours, he took upon himself the sin of the world. That was the horror of the cross to Christ. It had nothing to do with the nails and the wood and the hanging on the cross. And that was not what bothered him. What bothered Christ, what caused him such pain, is this perfect union that he had with the Father, this face-to-face relationship from eternity past, with all of the, 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 the wondrous love and, and, and fellowship that he had with the Father, that would be broken as he became sin. And he shied away from that. All right. It does, now, did he go through it? Of course he did. All right, because he subjected his will to the will of the Father. And Christ did not say, um, you know, I subject my wills to the will of the Father. He subjected his will to the will of the Father. He did what the Father called him to do. Yeah. Right. Satan said, I'll give you the easy way out. You can have all the kingdom of the world. Just bow, bow, bow down and serve me. You don't have to go the way of the cross. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and really, if you look at sin, what is sin? Sin at the at the bottom, when you when you you know dust everything off, sin is telling God, I have a better idea than you do about whatever. I have a better idea than you have. I don't trust you. I have a better way. I have a better plan. I have a better idea. I think it should go this way, not your way. That's really what sin is. It's a viol- sin is the violation of a relationship, folks. It's not the violation of a code of conduct or a set of rules. It's the violation of a relationship with God. That's what it is. All right. However, whatever form that takes, you're violating the relationship. And the way you violate the relationship is you tell God, I don't trust you. What did Adam and Eve tell God? Well, we have a better way on this. We think you're holding back on us. So we're going to go about it our own way. And that was the temptation that Satan gave Christ in the, in the wilderness. Bow down and worship me and you can have all the kingdoms of the world. Now, what did Christ know when he came into the world? Who is he heir of? What is he heir of? All the kingdoms of the world. But Satan offered him the easy way out. There was God's way and then there was Satan's way. And Christ had to choose, do I do it God's way, the will of the Father, or do I do it the easy way? We also have that same the choice in our lives. A lot of times Satan comes along and he gives us the easy way. Now, do you do things the easy way? Or do you do things God's way? You have to make a choice. And we sin when we succumb and we do it our way. When we try to give God help and we try to give him a hand or try to help him out, that's when we fall into sin. Every time. Yes. It's apparently. And the deceitfulness of sin is such that you think you're doing the right thing, but you're not. That's what makes sin so deceptive. You think you're doing the right thing, but you're not doing the right thing. And that's, that's why it's just so, so tricky. There's a lot of theology in Star Wars. Remember, when Anakin becomes Darth Vader, what did he think he was doing? Did he say, I'm going I'm to be evil today? Anybody who watched that, I'm sorry if all of you didn't watch him. He didn't wake up and say, I'm going to become evil today. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was convinced he was doing the right thing. All along, he was being led down the path of evil. And that's what makes sin so insidious. 
The union of the two natures was constant. What does that mean? It's not that, you know, well, humanity was more this day and the deity was more that day. It was a constant union between the two. They were in perfect balance. Alright? It is an eternal union. It never, it, it will, it will always be there. Christ, when he became fully human, he took upon that nature for eternity. In eternity future, he will have all the components of humanity. We will see him. He, we will view Christ. We see him with the nail prints in his hands in eternity. He has a physical existence, yet he is still the eternal God. The thing I have problems with are the constancy of the two natures is such verses as no one knows, not even the Son of Man, when you know mm-hmm. he's going to return. And to me, I always taught, and I will change as of this minute if I find that I'm convinced by your answer. And that is that. that well, that's, that's, that's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. All right. But, no, but I've, I've, I've always taught that the Father sometimes withheld aspects of the divine nature from the Son for whatever reason, including the fact that the Son was able to say he doesn't even know. Thus, omniscience um, mm-hmm. was being withheld, you know, as to when the return. The, the mystery here, and you're, you're hitting the kenosis, the, the emptying of Christ. The mystery is not that Christ was not omniscient. It's that Christ limited his knowledge in the incarnation. That's, that's the key in the incarnation to that which was revealed to him by the Father. There was a self-limiting. Now, we, we, we got to think about that because that's tough for us to, to think about. I mean, Christ grew up as a normal human boy, didn't he? Alright? Was that the omniscient Son of God there? Yes, it was, but in his incarnation... When he became a man, he limited his knowledge. He limited his experiences to that which the Father gave him. He was led by the Spirit. So did Christ know the time of his return? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he was omniscient. Had he wanted to, he could have gotten that information. But no, because in his incarnation, in his self-emptying, he limited his knowledge to what the Father revealed to him. There was a self-limiting. Does he know now? Absolutely he knows now. But that's the mystery of the Incarnation. The mystery of the Incarnation is Christ limited himself willingly, without coercion from the Father. He limited his activities and he limited his knowledge to that which the Father revealed to him. Yeah. If he wanted to. Right. In a Christ incarnation, he set aside, and this is the idea of the kenosis, he willingly set aside the independent use of omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. In his incarnation, he veiled his glory, right, to become a man. And it's not that he could not have known that any more than he could have not called ten legions of angels. He could have done that too, right? But if he had done that, what would he have, what would he have done? He would have violated his incarnation. He would, have, he would have violated his setting aside of omnipotence. And that's the, that's the difference. He voluntarily set it aside. It was not coerced on him. It was not forced on him. He voluntarily did that in the incarnation to affect our redemption. Does that make any sense? That's uh, Philippians 2. We're going to get to that. Probably not this week, but we're going to get to that. Maybe next week. The kenosis. And that's what it means. When Christ ascended into heaven, he did not get rid of the humanity part of him. How did he ascend? Physically, right? In fact, that's really an important thing. Christ rose physically from the grave. He did not rise spiritually from the grave. He rose as a physical being. We're going to get to that. We're not going to get to it this week, but we're going to get to it. 
I got I got to do something to keep you coming back, you know. Um, and neither nature overwhelmed the other. You didn't have one nature that totally overwhelmed and subsumed. And that's one of the heresies. Some say, well, Christ was so divine, he wasn't human. That's not accurate. Christ was fully human, fully divine. All right? Um, Christ is fully God and fully man. Why is this important? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature that sinned should make satisfaction for sin. Understand that? The same nature that sinned needs to live any perfect life, right? Not a second different... And that's why I said he had to become like one of us. He could not have become an angelic being. That's one of the things the Hebrew says. He could not. He had to become like his brethren in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Okay? So Jesus is the sin bearer. He's the perfect sin bearer. He was perfect humanity. The first Adam was... And think about it. The first Adam was in a perfect environment and sinned. The second Adam was in a sinful environment and lived perfectly. And it's his righteous life that is imputed to us at the moment of our salvation that makes us as righteous as Christ is. When God looks at you, he sees pure righteousness. Judicially. You will never die for one of your sins. Because you're perfect. You're as perfect as, right. you're, you're, you're as, perfect as Christ is. That's, that's a heavy thought. It's not that you're just perfect, but you're as perfect as Christ was perfect. And because of this union of the nature, because Christ became fully God, fully man, he can be a faithful high priest. In what sense? He knows what we're going through. He knows what we face. He knows our temptation. He knows our tests. He can sympathize with us. We'll go for just a few more minutes. Um, I'm going to skip this slide here because we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about this. I mean, we're going to come back to this. And one more thing I was going to say is that we're already ahead. We're not starting off from behind. We're ahead already. Yet we're already that good because of what he's done. Anything we do because of his grace and mercy is a plus. Mm-hmm. We're not working in the negative. Yeah. We're not trying to... And that's, that's the thing here. You can't do anything to make yourself more holy or more righteous. You're already as righteous as you can be. You need to live like it now. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's quickly finish this up. I'm going to go just a couple minutes over. We're, we've been starting at 15 till to get for the second service to get out. So, um, The two natures were mixed in such a way that there was no mixture or loss of their separate identity. What does that mean? He, was, he, he didn't lose humanity. He didn't lose deity. He didn't lose a single attribute of humanity. He didn't use, lose a single attribute of deity. They were both there. Okay? He didn't lose something. He was 100% human. They can't lose or transfer a single attribute. His divine can't become human. The human can't become divine. There are some errors or heresies in the early church where it says, well, Jesus the man became divine with the addition of divine attributes. That's error. That's heresy. All right? They're united without affecting the respective attributes of the two natures. What does that mean? It means that the human characteristics, the human attributes, did not take upon themselves a different form because they were in, they were united with the deity. They were still all human. You follow what it's saying there? They did not change. They were not altered. Neither were the divine attributes altered because there were human attributes there alongside them. They were identical. They, they were separate and they did not morph into something else. Okay? That's what it's saying. And they're both attributed to the single person. There's not two people in there. There's not two personalities in there. The eternal priesthood of Christ is based on this union. He, had, he, was of, he was of the order of Melchizedek. And a lot of people get all wound up on what is Melchizedek. Um, Melchizedek's priesthood was an eternal priesthood because we don't have any record of his beginning and ending. He was a high priest of God, right? In Genesis. And uh, Aaron's priesthood, did that change? Well, sure. When the high priest died, there was a new high priest, right? It was never seen as an... And, and by the way, God never designed the Aaronic priesthood to be an eternal priesthood. 
And which came first, Melchizedek or Aaron? Melchizedek. And in fact, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, who paid tithes along with him? Levi. And that means that Levi's priesthood is secondary to Melchizedek's. Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. Why? Well, he was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. Therefore, Christ's priesthood is an eternal priesthood. It's a valid priesthood. Because one of the things that the... I don't want to get too confused on this, but one of the problems in Hebrews that the Hebrew readers had is, wait a minute, we have a priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Christ isn't... How can he be my high priest? He, he's not of the tribe of Levi. And the writer of Hebrews says, of course he is. And he's of the... He's the order of Melchizedek. He's a high priest, just not of the line of Aaron. He's a valid high priest. But he had to be human in order to become my high priest. The prophetic office of Christ is necessary. What's the prophetic office? Revealing God to us. Right? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We heard about it in the prophets in all various ways in the Old Testament. In the latter days, he's revealed himself to us by his Son. When Christ stepped into time, Christ was the full, complete revelation of who God was. And he had to do that. He had to become a man in order to do that. The incarnate Christ is worshipped as God. I mean, it's clear that he is God. Um, just a couple more. The kingly office is dependent on that. How could Christ be the king, the Messiah of the line of David if he was not born? He had to be. So the office of prophet, priest, and king are all vitally related to him being fully human. The incarnation. And in his ascension, divine nature was restored to its place of infinite glory. The human nature was exalted to what we're going to be like. We're going to be like him for we shall see him as he is. We're not going to be divine. Don't let Copeland and Hagen and all those guys tell you that, that you're little gods. You're not. We're not going to be divine, but we are going to be Exalted humanity, sinless, perfect, without sin, and not able to sin. The best part of being in heaven is just not being able to mess it up. That's the best part of it. Um, you can read that. I, let's see. We're going here. All right. We're going to pick this up next week. We're going to talk about... The kenosis, and we're also going to talk about the temptation. We're going to delve into that. So, if you want to do a little bit of homework um, for next week, read Matthew chapter four, Christ's temptation, because we're going to be talking about that. Because, in what way is his human nature one of the ways in which it was really seen? What was seen is in, is in his temptation. All right, in his temptation in the wilderness. All right. Um, any questions or comments or? Are y'all keeping up? Does this all make sense? I mean, you've got to think about it a little bit, but is it making sense? All right. Okay, well, let's uh, close in prayer then. Father, thanks so much for this day and for being challenged from your word. I pray that we would understand this to the best of our ability and help us to, to know you better. And thank you so much for dying for us, for, for taking our place on the cross, Jesus. You took our place and paid the debt so that we become like you someday. And we just thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.